And so the difference between that and where we are now with whole genome sequencing is that whole genome sequencing replaces almost all of those long, cumbersome, costly processes because you need only one sample and then you get one result out of it. But that result is combining the majority of all those other genetic tests. So you have one turnaround time with the greatest chance to get the diagnosis. And in that way, genomic testing has really revolutionized the entire genetic testing industry by providing this really comprehensive analysis with the shortest time to diagnosis. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Genomics Podcast. I am your host, Paul Broman, and I'm also Scientific Affairs Lead at Illumina. According to the Orphanet Portal for Rare Diseases and Orphan Drugs, there are approximately 6,000 known rare diseases. Most of these are actually genetic in origin, which means that they're caused by inherited DNA mutations in an individual's genome. And surprisingly, the California Healthcare Institute estimates that up to 10% of the population may be affected by a rare disease. But because these individual diseases are relatively uncommon, it can be challenging for healthcare professionals to correctly diagnose and treat them. Whole exome sequencing can identify the DNA sequence of the 2% of our genome that encodes for genes. On the other hand, whole genome sequencing can identify the complete DNA sequence of an individual's genome. And so whole genome sequencing holds the promise of improving diagnostics for rare genetic diseases. To talk about these issues, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Christine Stanley to the show. Christine is Chief Director of Clinical Genomics at Variantics in Framingham, Massachusetts. Listen to Christine explain how whole genome sequencing can impact on the understanding and diagnosis of rare genetic disorders. Well, Dr. Christine Stanley, I want to welcome you to the Genomics Podcast today. Today, we're going to talk about the current state of whole genome sequencing as a diagnostic platform. Could you just introduce yourself a little bit, talk about your background and how you became involved in clinical genomics, and then just briefly describe Variantics for us. Thank you so much for inviting me today to talk about my favorite subject. <laughs> my background is in genetics. I've been involved in genetic testing for the past 15 years. My undergraduate degree is in genetics, my PhD is in human genetics, and I'm boarded in clinical molecular genetics by the American Board of Medical Genetics and Genomics, which is a medical board specialty that allows you to work in the clinical diagnostic testing space in genetics. So basically, my life since high school has been genetics, genetics, genetics. I'm also the regulatory director of Variantics, and labs that perform testing on patients in the U.S. have to adhere to CLIA regulations, which are government regulations surrounding testing patient samples just to protect patients in that uh, space. And Variantix is a CLIA lab performing whole genome-based clinical diagnostic sequencing. Whole genome sequencing produces large amounts of data. Variantix developed sophisticated software algorithms to sort through the data and pull out the most important pieces. What this does is to essentially provide the same type of data that you would get from whole exomes. It can also find clinically important variants, which are really challenging, if not impossible, to obtain from traditional exomes or gene panels. 
for our listeners who maybe aren't super familiar with genetic testing, in the context of the diagnostics industry, I think of a, a huge range of possible technologies that are out there that people are using for genetic testing. And one end of that spectrum, I think of people who are testing for individual variants and in individual genes. And for that, people are using really old technologies like PCR and Sanger sequencing. More recently, as genomics technologies have become more available and accessible, it's more possible now to look at pathogenic variants kind of genome-wide. For that, we have, as you mentioned, exome sequencing or even whole genome sequencing that folks are starting to use. So from your perspective, I know you mentioned you're doing whole genomes. What's the diagnostic value in having access into the huge amount of data that whole genome can provide? Well, Paul, you bring up a really good point about like historically genetic testing has been really disjointed. And what that means is like the tests that were developed 10 to 15 years ago, and a lot of these are still being run today by laboratories, they were developed essentially by looking under a lamppost at a very small isolated region. So before we had sequencing, we had to target very specific areas for a very small number of changes that caused certain disease. And then we tested everyone who had that disease or some features of that disease for that one particular variant or that small number of variants. We didn't have many positive results with that approach because you developed this small test to target this one area of the genome. And unless that area accounted for the majority of the disease, then you're left developing more tests to try to find other causes of disease, either within that same gene or within other genes. You're doing these sequentially, so you're bringing the patients back in, you're telling them the result's negative, then you order another test and bring them back in, and that really extends the time. And then also, the more tests you run, you run the risk of introducing human error, sample swaps, and things like that. And sometimes even with these multiple platforms, you had half the answer on one test and then half on the other test. And so you really needed the clinician to be savvy enough to pull those two test results together and see that the patient is positive. This all resulted in really long diagnostic odysseys for patients that lasted years or decades. And then some families, you know, frankly, they just give up on it. It costs them financially, emotionally. Delaying the time to diagnosis really results in losing an effective treatment window in cases where early treatment is really important for good prognoses. So we moved from those type of single looking for really targeted variant tests. And then we got vaulted into like the new generation, next generation sequencing into these large gene panels, which was really awesome. And that also came with some frustration because that propelled the industry to start really developing these really large gene panel tests of like hundreds to a thousand genes in a panel. But starting like with even like 100 or 200 or 300 genes, as soon as you developed your panel a week later or a day later, a new publication would hit <laughs> right. and be like, yeah. oh, there's these new genes involved this disease. And so now you redesign every six weeks, you're redesigning your panels and it's very expensive and frustrating for the patients because you give them a negative result and they're like, oh, well, there's six new genes. Do I need to be retested again? And so the difference between that and where we are now with whole genome sequencing is that whole genome sequencing replaces almost all of those long, cumbersome, costly processes because you need only one sample and then you get one result out of it. That result combining the majority of all those other genetic tests. So you have one turnaround time with the greatest chance to get the diagnosis. And really importantly, if the test result is negative and then a gene is associated with the patient's disease is reported the next day and that patient had a variant in that gene, you can make that connection by performing data analysis rather than by getting the patient back in for a new sample. And in that way, genomic testing has really revolutionized the entire genetic testing industry by providing this really comprehensive analysis with the, the shortest time to diagnosis. 
So you're doing whole genome sequencing on clinical samples. And, and my understanding is the way you report that data back to the physician, it can be tailored depending on the specific clinical question that they're asking. So can you talk just a little bit, walk us through the workflow? I mean, how do you leverage this data to look at specific clinical questions? So in the past, when you would order a test, a genetic test, you'd be ordering a diagnostic test for like a gene. So the lab didn't really need much clinical information on the patient. The assumption was that the patient had the disease associated with the gene. With whole exome or whole genome sequencing, you're talking about around 20,000 genes, of which about 5,000-ish are somewhat understood, and those genes can be associated with several diseases, and each disease can be associated with dozens of clinical symptoms or more. So we approached looking at a patient test in a couple of ways. One, we rank the variants in a way that pulls variants that are known to be causing disease to the top of our lists. And we also can rank those variants by looking at the genes that most closely match the patient's clinical symptoms. And we parse those results based on the known inheritance patterns of these particular genes. So we look at patient results through both of those lenses at the same time, the severity of the changes that we identify and the changes that match with the clinical symptoms of the patient. One thing that I'd like to add here is that genomes and exomes at most labs are essentially the same product because you essentially have to filter down both tests to the same gene list, essentially. However, if you start with exomes, you have a little bit less information to start with because you have inevitably lost some information when you tried to capture the genes. That's because exomes require a mechanical step of isolating the genes first, and genomes don't. And at most places, that is the main difference between those tests, is that um, exomes, even if you have a genome and a filtered genome that goes to an exome and an exome that's been designed as an exome capture, that's probably the biggest difference. But at Variantix, there's a much, much bigger difference in what we're able to report using PCR-free whole genome sequencing. And that's because we've developed tools that identify different types of variants that you don't typically get off of exome sequencing. That's repeat expansions, deletions and duplications, structural rearrangements, inversions, transposable element insertions. And this is really the big difference. And that's why this software is so important and is so sophisticated to be able to identify these types of variants. Having more variants identified is meant to improve the diagnostic outcome and not create more uncertainty. So we don't report more variants of uncertain significance than you would see in a typical exome. But we're able to report more types of relevant variants. A lot of the clinical diagnostic applications that I know about that, that use NGS, they're in, the, they're in the space of cancer and oncology. And I think that makes a lot of sense given what we know about cancer and how it's disease of the genome. In addition to cancer, what are some of the other kind of unmet clinical needs that you think could really benefit from a genomics approach? I mean, what are the sorts of diseases and disorders that, that you're focusing on? At Varentes, we focus on rare disease. A lot of that comes from the neurological space for both early onset diseases like epilepsy and intellectual disability, but also late onset disorders like ALS. But really, we can report on any genetic disorder that is inherited and where there's good information in genetic databases. That includes neurology for sure, but it also includes endocrinology and nephrology and hearing loss and vision loss and blood disorders like thalassemia and muscular dystrophy and on and on. So wherever there's good data that connects that disease to inherited genetic disorder, we can identify it through genomic sequencing. 
It's interesting. I did a podcast, I think, last year with someone in Australia whose daughter had a, a rare genetic disorder, and she started a patient advocacy organization in Australia. And one of the things she told me was just really blew my mind is that her daughter went through a nine-year period where she could not get a diagnosis. And not just the difficulty in getting a diagnosis, but sometimes there's a misdiagnosis. So she was given two diagnoses that were incorrect, which were diagnoses for life-threatening diseases. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really good point. When you're looking in one region, you kind of try to find an answer in that region, right? But when you remove that barrier and you're open to anything that you find and you let the data tell you what's there, you remove that bias. And so I think we've seen historically clinicians maybe thinking, well, they're not exactly a great fit for this, but this is the closest I can really find. And so if they find anything that sort of supports possibly that being the diagnosis, then they sort of run with that. And then it's unfortunate because people get tied in with these incorrect diagnoses that is going to impact their clinical management. And also this uh, identity that gets formed, you get connected to support groups and other patients. And then later on, they say, no, 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 you don't have this, you have this other thing. And so you tear them apart with what they've known their whole life. It's getting the diagnosis. And Sometimes you think, oh, well, you hear you're giving this bad news. You've identified this pathogenic variant. And for most of the families, they know they're sick. They really want to know why. Because once you have that answer, you're really empowered to do something with it. Now I've got something that I can like do my own research. I can look at specialists. I can look for other people that can help me. But when you don't know, it's this big question mark. And it sort of makes you helpless. You, there's no place for you to go. And so trying to get the diagnosis, we get really excited when we're able to find it, right? This is what our job is as geneticists and genetic counselors that are working on behalf of the patients to try to figure out the genetic cause of what's causing their clinical symptoms. We get super excited when we find it. We're like, we found this and you feel kind of bad. You're like, oh no, this is a bad thing. But for the family, it provides them an answer and that relief and they don't have to test anymore. Yeah, that's the other <laughs> thing that you, once you have an answer, you know that this is the answer you don't have to keep coming in because some of these tests obviously are super invasive and not pleasant. And the other thing you brought up, which I think is really interesting, is this idea of the phenotype and how the phenotype doesn't always necessarily match what we know about the genetics. And so the genomics technologies, obviously, are we're learning a lot more about the heterogeneity at the genotype level, but I think we're probably going to also learn more that there's a lot of phenotypic diversity as well. These diseases don't always present the same way. You're totally right. So when we first begin to understand a new disorder, we get that information usually from uh, patients who are the most clinically severe. They're the patients that show up in the hospitals. The kind of typical presentation of this. That's what you would originally call the typical presentation of a new disorder. That's because those are the patients that go to the hospitals. But what we find out once we do genetic testing is that the severity, so usually the disorder seems really severe when it's first described. And then over time, you start testing more people and they have more subtle symptoms. They have less severe symptoms. And so you start to see the genetic spectrum of the disease, the phenotypic spectrum of disease really start to broaden. You talk really nicely about the current landscape, but what do you think it's going to get to take us from where we are now to this situation where there might be routine whole genome sequencing in clinical care? What do you think it's going to take to get there? Really what we need are publications supporting the clinical utility of genomic sequencing as a first line of defense rather than a last resort. 
This is the data that drives the insurance companies to cover the test. If you have data to support that this test saves time, money, and supports better outcomes for patients, they, the payers or insurance providers, will cover the cost of testing. They've done so in the past, they'll do so in the future. It just typically takes years to pull that data together. So the faster that we can do this as an industry, the faster genomic testing will be adopted. You're creating and you're analyzing huge amounts of NGS data, and you're doing that in a really regulated environment where issues like patient privacy and data security, those are paramount issues. If you want to talk about technical or scientific or or medical challenges, what are the biggest challenges that you face or that you face in getting your platform up and running? What are your challenges now, and how are you working to overcome those challenges? That's a good question. You're correct that we had to develop a very secure data infrastructure to keep all of our patient data highly secure. We have a team of IT and informatics staff who have data security as their top priority. However, we feel that the U.S., by not having something equivalent to GDPR, is a huge issue. And so we need something equivalent in the U.S. that will be able to make sure that all labs are acting at the highest level of patient security and protection. We expect that like our lab and other labs will act in accordance regardless of being mandated, but it's an added cost and feel that financial pressures could have some facilities not implementing needed safeguards without these mandates being in place. And patients are giving their most personal privacy data to a company. The company really needs to safeguard that data and allow the patient to control who has access to their genetic data so that it's not sold or used in ways that the patient wouldn't consent to. Other industry challenges for us and the rest of the industry, we're continuously trying to improve the clinical information provided to us because genomes and exomes are highly personalized reports, right? So that if clinicians don't or can't provide us accurate clinical information about the patient, we're really less likely to make the correct connections to variants that may be causing clinical symptoms. We just don't know what the symptoms are. So we provide a test requisition form to input this data. We strongly encourage sending detailed clinical histories that we can use to personalize their genomic report. But there's really been wide variable quality and breadth of clinical information that gets provided back to us. We're currently trying to figure out how do we ask better questions, how can we receive better information that will help guide the variants that we investigate. And we're trying to look for ways to reduce the burden on the clinician. Their time is very limited. And so we want tons of high quality clinical information, but they just don't have the time for that. And sometimes the patients, they used to come from geneticists, right? And now they don't. Now they come from just any specialty that you can think of. So if you're a neurologist, you're not focusing on dysmorphic facial features. If you're a nephrologist, you're focusing on that. You're not focusing on maybe the neurology or whatever. So they provide the clinical information from the scope of the testing that they do in in their practice. And so you're not getting the full clinical pictures. If you can pull in like medical histories and all as much as possible, we can get a more complete picture. So we're looking at ways to do this. One idea is to help us is for them to rank the clinical symptoms of the patient for the ones that they're most primary concerned by. So we know what's more severe because we get a list. We don't know what's severe and what's sort of ancillary. Oh, wow. That is challenging. And so we're adapting our test requisition form. We have clinicians on our side review the clinical notes. We can proactively reach out to the clinicians to clarify. But really, at the end of the day, having some sort of direct input into electronic medical records would be something that we want to pursue down the road. That type of information is very useful for reanalysis, right? So as the clinician seeing patients again and putting new clinical symptoms in there, if there was some way to connect it to the genetic data, so you say, ah, there's a symptom here and now there's a gene that has a variant that causes that symptom, then you could get those connections and that reanalysis real time. 
ultimately, at the end of the day, you're trying to find the best possible single test that's the easiest for the patients and families, provides them the shortest time to a diagnosis and the best chance at implementing treatments. And we're not going to stop until we arrive at this level of data analysis so that ultimately no one that has a genetic cause of disease will receive a negative result. How do you see the clinical genome sequencing evolving and maturing? What excites you about the future? What are you looking forward to? So first of all, home genome sequencing has been exciting me for the last several years. This is where I wanted to get to, and it's it's super exciting to be here. (laughs) I really see like us diving into the part of the genome that has been uncharted in genetic diagnostic testing so far. So we're just starting to look at other types of variants in our labs, like transposable element insertions. But there's a lot out there in that vast sea of genomic information that resides in that non-coding part of the genome. The dark genome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Out there in the dark genome. Large-scale cohort studies using whole genome sequencing will make this connection. That research is really important to populate the databases that we use in diagnostic testing and really touch upon that. But doing these big studies that sequence these large populations, and then you can use that data to make the connections that go into the databases that then circle through into the diagnostic reporting is really important. So to continue that... I see pharmacogenomic testing getting a new life now that we're not only seeing looking just at risk variants, but we see everything. So patient may have a variant in the P450 gene that would be consistent with being a rapid metabolizer for a particular drug. But they could also have a variant elsewhere in that gene that causes a frame shift, making that initial variant completely irrelevant, right? (laughs) So right now, we don't look for those other variants. We just laser focus, just like the beginning of the genetic testing industry. We're just looking at these very small points, and we're making these connections. So I see that like once you get all this information, and you're going to see much better concordance with the genotype and the drug metabolism state when you're looking at all that information. And it's going to take a lot of intense processing to kind of pull that all together. I see artificial intelligence. Everybody likes to say AI. Yeah, machine learning algorithms. Yeah, there's a lot of data, right? And that's what those algorithms do. So I really see AI playing an important role in managing the information in a better way, resulting in faster answers to questions surrounding that human health and personalized medicine, helping to assimilate more of the patient's clinical information in a way that can match to more genomic variants and parse that information to find the best answer more quickly. It's likely it's not going to be just one answer for anybody. There are going to be many variants that play together in an individual. Some people have a pathogenic variant and their disease is mild and some it's severe. That's the type of thing that we'll really learn about as we are better at processing these large data sets. That's wonderful. Christine, I want to thank you for this fascinating discussion. I really appreciate what you were trying to do at Variantics and provide answers to to patients and their families with rare disorders because I've talked to too many people for whom that diagnostic odyssey takes just far too long. And I think, like we mentioned, if there are answers in the genome, I hope that one day we get to a point where we can get 100% of answers for people. So I want to thank you for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you. It is my pleasure. Hey, if you like today's show, please subscribe to the podcast wherever podcasts are found. You can also listen to our podcast on your favorite smart speaker. Just say, play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Michael Talkowski, Associate Professor of Neurology, Psychiatry, and Pathology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We'll be discussing the role of DNA structural variation in human developmental and psychiatric disorders, right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.